0: On August 15th, 1977, there was this guy named uh, Jerry Emmon, and he discovered uh, a scientific uh, discovery that just wowed the scientific community. Still does to this day, uh, no pun intended. Called the Wow signal, it was a signal that came from deep space, and uh, scientists. He was so shocked by it. You know, if you if you Google the Wow signal and look at it, they've got a picture of his scientific readouts, you know, from space, and then he, he wrote in red pen in the corner, wow, there's this one uh, disruptive signal that was just nothing, like nothing else, and they spent quite a, quite a lot of time trying to decide where did the signal come from, did it bounce off of some space debris, was it actually from Earth, and all this kind of thing, and um, at any rate, even to this day, you have a global network of scientists and volunteers who are um, a global network that are, are, are looking for the next wow signal, the next, the next you know, sign. They call it the SETI network. It's a global network called the, uh, it stands for, uh, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And so looking for this next wow, looking for a sign that we're not alone in the universe, that look out in the expanse of the universe and say, surely this would be a great waste of space if we we're the only ones here. And so you've got this global community kind of looking for this. And at the heart of it, as you, as you kind of look at what is it in man, uh, beyond just scientific in- inquiry, that looks off into the stars to say, you know, is there something bigger? Is there something more? Is there something out there? And then as you kind of engage in philosophical thought about that, the deepest longings of the human soul even if you were to answer the question of are we the only one, in, you know, are we alone in the universe or are there, you know, other worlds, if you, you know, answer that or answer the ontological question of, you know, where did man come from and how did the world get here, you've got this deep, deep insatiable longing for meaning and desire and uh, th- this 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 thing in man that looks and says this can't be all that there is. I mean, what's driving all of this is this, this deep insatiable craving, and man, to say, I can't look at a world I'm living in where there's the dichotomy dichotomy of children starving and people, you know, throwing balls and making a hundred bajillion dollars, and the dichotomy of beautiful, joyous things and horrible tragedies, and the dichotomy of people saying, let's live with great love and tolerance towards our neighbor, and, you know, atrocities that we see week in and week out in our news feeds. There's something inside of every human being from every worldview that says there's got to be something more than this. And I have really good news, and the answer is yes, there is more than this. And as, just as scientists, you know, fire telescopes out in the deepest regions of space, and just as man is continually looking to say, are we alone in the universe? The good news of the gospel, or of the Christian worldview, the Christian faith, is that there is an infinite God of the universe who spans across realms, this realm called earth that we live in, the realm that God abides in, that the Bible calls heaven, that the book of Revelation, spoiler alert for how the Bible ends, is that this realm gets peeled back to reveal the realm of God, and he restores all things in this realm, and in the end we live forever with God in life and in light. This is the good news of where Christian, uh, the Christian worldview tells us history is going. The Bible actually starts with a conclusion, it's good, and then it ends with a beginning, which is God restores all things, and you and I actually resume in all of eternity with God's original plan, which was in the beginning. Uh, And so all of this speaks to the deepest longings of the human soul, but how does this great God of the realms, of the universe, the great God of of uh, of the the unanswerable questions in science, the unanswerable questions in philosophy, the the unanswerable questions in theology. Because when you engage in theology, you are committing to mystery. Because an uh, an incomprehensible God can't be fully and comprehensively understood. If I stood here and just unfolded everything about God, it would be incredibly small, and you should be very nervous going home thinking that you've got a pastor that's just crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's on God. So we're engaging in mystery. And I'm saying all this because the way, that you re- the way that God has chosen to reveal his infinite self to finite minds is slowly, very slowly. So we've got a Bible that's come to us over about 1,500 years, conservatively speaking, 66 books, 40 different authors from different, from different cultures and different time periods that are all saying one thing. And it is the relentless love and grace of God, the Bible in a nutshell, is... God's love for sinners through Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. That in the end is not death, but life. Not darkness, but light. This is the promise of hope. In a world where by the time this service is over, you're going to go home and there's going to be something else that makes you cry or makes you angry in your news feed. Because this is the world that we live in. But the Christian hope in Christ alone for salvation answers the questions for why in august 15th, 1977 when jerry emmon got that wow signal coming from deep space and he wanted to know where it came from that since then there's been a global community established to say we can't be the only ones here And the good news is that we aren't this morning our text is from genesis chapter 15 i'm going to read the first six verses over the course of the summer we're going to do a seven-part series called relentless love how did this infinite god reveal himself to us finite people with this great, relentless love. And we're just going to look at a few passages over the summer that speak to how God, in his great grace, just keeps coming at us. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said... O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. This is God's word. As we unpack this text to say, what does this mean? What was God doing? What was God showing to Abraham? And why did this happen? Here's the sermon in a sentence. God affirms that he's with us. God creates faith in us. And then he uses that faith to save and empower us. These are the three things we want to pull from this text. God affirms that he's with us, he creates faith in us, and then he uses that faith to save and empower us. What's going on here? Well, Abram was childless, as we know. God wants to get Jesus Christ, the Savior, to the planet. And he chooses, throughout all of history, one sinner after the next. One guy that can't get it together after the next. The Bible is not a story of heroes. The Bible is a story of one hero, and everybody's pointing to that guy. And God, in his great grace and wisdom, chooses Abraham, pulls Abraham out of all his comfort zone, out of his family, out of where he came from, and by his great grace, he enables Abraham uh, during this time to come through this, what's the equivalent of a world war, and Abraham comes to the end, and he's alive, and he's got all these spoils from this world war that he came out of, and he recognizes, this is impossible other than God was with me. And, as, and then after that, he, 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 he uh, has this moment that we kind of pick up here where God comes to him to say, I've got a promise for you. And Abraham is very old and he has no children, but the promise is that God is going to make him the father of nations. And of course, in the Christian view, we know that he's the father of our faith. And what's going on here? Abraham is so confused, but God is coming at Abraham in great grace. Here's the first thing. God affirms that he's with us. When you look at, at verse 1, the, sc- the scenario is is impossible and and god comes to abraham and he meets his anxiety with affirmation and god meets the anxiety in your life and mine with affirmation god in his great grace comes toward abraham and the first thing he says is he says fear not i'm your shield your exceedingly great reward and in english we read that and it sounds like oh there's this great reward coming you're my shield and there's a great reward on its way in the Hebrew, the way this reads, it's clearer, is, Abraham, I am your shield. Abraham, I am your reward. And in other words, God is saying, all of your peace, all of your hope for this life is actually found in me, and I'm coming in grace to you, and I'm coming at you, toward you, um, to give you hope in this impossible world that you find yourself living in. And, uh, you know, I know in my own life I'm very I'm very quick to question God's wisdom, but I rarely question my own wisdom. I'm really quick to look at my life and the circumstances of my life and be like, God, what are you doing? You know, but I never seem to question what I'm doing. You know, I don't know if you relate to this. Uh, and, so, and so the grace of God is really good that he kind of pats me on the head and reminds me that, you know, it's like, you know I'm in control of everything, right? And, you know, that's where the peace is actually found. But Abraham, you can't blame him. He's kind of saying... um, I, I kind of doubt that you're with me, because his response is, well, I don't have any kids. I mean, you're talking about, you know, you're saying, if you're not, I'm with you, I'm your reward. And you're saying, well, how can you reward me? I don't even have any children. In the ancient world, children were a blessing and a reward, and that's how they were seen. And Abraham's like, God, I would have played this differently. You know, I'm looking at my life, and I would have played it differently. How many times have you looked at your life and said, God, I would have played this differently? And, uh, but God is coming to him with this great affirmation. And Abraham's kind of pattern follows the same pattern of the sin of the children of Israel, and it follows the same pattern that you and I can fall into, which is, I'm not sure what God's doing, therefore I'm not sure God's good, therefore I'm not sure God's with me, and therefore I'm not actually sure God exists. Because there's been a bit of a crisis in North America over the last 50, 50, 60 years as I study our our history, our church history here in North America, and here's the crisis— We've developed a theology in North America over the last 50, 60 years that says, you go to God to get things. You don't go to God to get God. But what the scriptures repeat over and over and over, and what God explicitly says here is, I am your shield, I am your reward. You you come to me to get me, to make sense of this crazy temporal world that you're living in. But the last 50, 60 years here in, in Canada... The largest movements in Canada, the largest uh, churches in Canada, the largest, uh, you just kind of look out at it, and you, if, you, if you peel back the curtain and say, what's explicitly being taught? What are the doctrines being perpetrated? What is the church? Why do people wake up and roll out of bed and come to church in the morning? And at the end of the day, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a great deal of it that lands in the category of, well, I need something from God, so I'm going to go to God to get what I perceive that I need. But if he doesn't give me what I need, kind of I'm out. And the problem with that, of course, is that there's no peace, there's no, there's no uh, hope for the impossible. Which, of course, Abraham is in a scenario that is impossible, and uh, God comes to him to say, hey, listen, no, you know, and Abraham says, that's why he goes to Eleazar of Damascus, you see that word, he's, what's going on, he's going, I don't have any kids, which means I have to give my whole inheritance to uh, this, my servant, uh, which in the ancient world, that was, that was quite common, And you get that, uh, I got that from a man named Martin Selman who wrote a book called The Customs of the Patriarchal Age. He's a professor of Old Testament theology at Spurgeon's College in London. And what he says is, hey, it was very common that if a very wealthy person or anybody really had no son, they would choose their most faithful servant and give everything to them. So that's what Abraham's saying to God right here. He's basically saying, I don't know how you could possibly say that you're with me and I don't need to be afraid and I don't understand, Because, by all appearances, my life didn't work out. And I think you and I have all been in that place, where we kind of stand in front of the mirror, or we stand lonely in our bedroom, or we're crying in the garage, or whatever the scenario is, or our heads are down at our desk at work, or we're driving home from work, or we're alone in traffic and we're alone with our thoughts, and we're kind of like, my life didn't work out. God, where are you? His response to Abraham is actually fulfilled to you in Christ. And his response is, I am your reward. God meets your anxiety with affirmation. God affirms that he's with him. And uh, this is what he does in his great grace. This is how he comes and he, and he uh, saves us. Because our problem since Eden has been, don't think about whose you are. Think about what you don't have. That's been the problem since the garden. Don't think about whose you are but you're God's. And he's given you absolutely everything. And he said, don't touch that tree to remind you that you're not God, right? You know, God, 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 wasn't, God, God wasn't withholding anything by saying don't touch the tree. Him saying don't touch the tree wasn't like I'm going to give you everything and withhold this. Saying don't touch the tree wasn't withholding anything. Saying touch the tree was the means by which he was con- going to continually give everything forever. Because he's saying I need to maintain a distinction. Creature meet creator, But from the beginning, mankind said, I don't want to remember whose I am. I want to think about what I don't have. And you and I have that same problem. And by God's great grace, he continually comes to us to affirm us in those moments where we say, life is not working out. God must not be good. God must not be with me. Maybe God doesn't exist. And God reels us in by his great grace, and he says, no, you don't understand. I am your reward. You think that this mud ball of a planet with those atrocities in your news feeds is as good as this gets you know how many christians i've talked to over the years that say if this doesn't happen i'm walking if god doesn't do that i'm leaving if god doesn't provide this it's over if god doesn't heal me i'm out if god doesn't heal my kid i'm gone and i lovingly say to them as boldly as i can well what that leaves you with is this world with all of its calamity all of its tragedy all of its disease and all of its death is your heaven This is as good as it gets. I can't think of anything more horrifying than this world I'm living in being heaven. God says, you don't understand. I'm restoring everything. I am on a path to get Christ to the planet Abraham. You don't even understand. He affirms that he is with him. When you look at Abraham's life, it's not unlike ours. Abraham, you know, he he strikes out all the time, just like you and me. In... in, uh, in verse 2 and 3, Abraham says, How are you going to do this? Strike one. In, 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 uh, in verse 8, which we didn't read today, but I'm going to read next week, he goes, How do I know you're even going to make good on this promise? How do I know this is going to happen? Strike two. And then in chapter 16, verse 2, spoiler alert, he sleeps with another woman. Strike three! I mean, Abraham strikes out. You and I strike out. Here's the good news, church. Not a day goes by when, by God's righteous standard, you and I don't strike out. But God's grace always bats last. That's just how it is. He's requiring perfection from you and I. We're not keeping his law. Don't lower his law to a doable standard. We're not, we're not keeping it as he intends it to be kept. I love him like crazy. Every day I love Jesus more. Every day I want to love my wife more and my kids more. And I I don't. But, you know, I just can't. I can't. Yesterday I was on the deck and I was trying to discipline uh, one of the kids. And the whole time I'm in the middle of discipline, Susan's looking at me like, you know, like, this is not loving. And so, you know, and I'm like, I'm not getting through to them. So, you know, uh, every parent has done this. I'm not getting through to you. And when I see the tears, then I know I'm getting through to you. So then the tears start coming. Okay, now we're making progress. Yes, there's some seriously sanctified parenting happening right now, and so then after that happened, uh, you know, and and, and uh, Susan comes to me after she's like she's like, babe, no, and I'm like, ah, Jesus. So I go in the house. I'm like, listen, will you forgive me? That was a nightmare, and uh, I love Jesus like crazy, but I break God's law every day by His perfect standard. I'm thankful grace bats last in my life, and that's what makes grace beautiful in your life that it bats last. God affirms that he's with us. Here's the second thing. Not only does God affirm he's with us, he creates the faith in us. He creates it. So Abraham is kind of, God comes to Abraham, and, and Abraham's like, I don't get what's going on, I don't have any kids. So what does God do? The word of the Lord comes to Abraham. That phrase, the word of the Lord, it only occurs twice in all of Genesis, and it occurs a ton in the whole Old Testament. But the word of the Lord, it starts with fear not. What's going on here? Why does this matter? Because if Abraham was just sitting there quietly thinking thoughts to himself and that's how the word of the Lord came, there's no no need for fear not. Because you sitting down on your deck thinking things to yourself is not scary. There's no reason to fear. But every single time an angel showed up, their first words were always, fear not. Right? Every time. So what this gives us is that Abraham saw something. God appeared to Abraham somehow, in some way, to give Abraham the faith, to believe. It's this gracious act of God, like, okay, we're not doing well. I'm going to come at you again in my grace. Abraham, fear not. The word of the Lord comes. Fear not, Abraham. Right? You see this, this, uh, this aspect of a theophany. It's not just here. It's in chapter 12, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 26, chapter 35, chapter 48, Exodus 3, Exodus 4, Exodus 6. I could keep going. So when God shows up, he's like, Fear not. When the word of the Lord comes, it's a word outside you. The word of the Lord comes to Abraham, and it's a saving word outside him, coming to him to bring comfort to him. Because of the cross of Jesus Christ, and he has fulfilled all things, the word of the Lord continually comes to you as a word outside you, to comfort you, to quiet your heart, to give you the faith to believe. It's not you sitting down and going deeper and deeper into yourself like a metaphysical cult. Where you just kind of like, I'm just going to empty my mind of everything and I'm going to kind of get a word from God. No, no, no. That's not how God's word comes. It's a word outside you coming to you. The reason you come to church on Sunday is because this is God's word, infallible, outside you. Hear this Bible as I read it. Christ preached comes to you. That creates faith in you. This is what God does. This is what God has always done. This is what he does. Maybe you hear and you say, but Paul, have you thrown away the New Testament? What about the Holy Spirit? Isn't he inside us? Amen and amen. The Holy Spirit is inside us with his spotlight ministry of guiding us into all truth, which is what? Not about random things. Guiding us into all truth about Christ, his work, what he did. And in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was God. This is, Christ is not the, 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 uh, the ink on the page, but Christ is the word of God incarnate. Therefore, the word of God is always this comforting word coming outside you to you, to comfort your heart. And so God comes to Abraham and he's in the word of the Lord. Right? And so God creates faith the way he creates everything. By speaking. So we don't gather at a church on Sundays because we somehow get brownie points and we're adding to our righteousness by having great church attendance. We come because we need God's word to come to us to create faith in us. To, 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 so we have that affirmation that God is with us. So that, we can, so that he can save and empower us. So that Monday through Saturday, we live to his glory. We enjoy him. We work. We, we do glorious things. Our whole life is to his glorification. And then every seventh day, we come and we stop from our work and we rest in his work. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. May this comforting word come to my soul again. And fuel my spirit so that I can go out and enjoy you and live to your glory. The word comes to Abraham from the outside by speaking. And so this is how this works. Of course, the the modern problem uh, today is that we say, well, you know, the modern problem would be, I don't know what God's word says, but I think I'm hearing the voice of the Lord directing me. That is scary, um, because now I'm left up to my own, the subjectivity of my own heart, and I'm saying this is now God telling me things. And so... Abraham gets the word of the Lord that creates this radical faith inside him. You and I, because of the completed work of Christ at the cross, have the Holy Spirit inside us, drawing us all the way back to what Christ has accomplished and all the way forward to what is coming with his return. And as we live in the already and the not yet, where tragedy occurs, and week after week we're we're here at Redeemer and we're praying, and we're thankful for the joys of our life and we're praying for our suffering, that it reorients our hearts and it reorients our minds to remind us that this life is not all that there is. And just like those scientists firing the, 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 you know, those, uh, those uh, technological devices into deep space saying, are we the only ones that are out here? The Christian worldview, we, we fire our prayers out into deep space knowing, yeah, I'm not alone. God has affirmed that he's with me. God is creating faith inside me. And by his great grace of Christ alone, he is empowering me. And I'm going to enjoy and I'm going to live to his glory uh, day in and day out. This is the beauty of this. And this is why we teach God's word to our kids. I was talking with a friend of mine a couple of years ago and he was saying, you know, when you plant KW Redeemer, what are you going to do for the kids? The kids are over there across the hall being taught the scriptures. We break it down in a kidified way. Susan's using Pixar right now. She wrote this, you know, using these great modern day parables. To uh, highlight some things, to show the kids the beauty of Christ through the scriptures. So that's what's going on. We're teaching them the scriptures because they need God's word so that they can understand and hear God's word. We're preparing them to sit under here under the teaching of the word of God here uh, in the main service uh, with you. Now, I was talking with a friend, and he said, how are you going to do it? And I explained what I just explained to you. and teach the kids the word of God. And he said, well, are you going to teach your kids to hear the voice of God? I said, well, I just said that. I'm going to teach them to hear the voice of God by teaching them God's word. That's how you... That's how you learn English or Spanish or any other language you had a word spoken to you and by hearing that word spoken to you you learned the language and now you recognize the voice that's how language works and he said yeah but what we do is our, we just have our kids get real quiet and they lay on the floor and they quiet their hearts and they listen for the voice of God and I thought to myself that's both terrifying and confusing because a little child I know my son what he would be thinking about laying by himself he'd be thinking about pizza waffles ice cream and Captain America. You know, I mean he would be thinking all all manner of things. We don't hear God's voice in a vacuum. We hear it and that's how faith is created. And then they said to me, "Well, are you really going to preach Jesus Christ through every text every Sunday?" And the answer is yes. Why? I have to. Because if I don't preach Christ to you through every text every Sunday, you cannot have faith grown in your heart because that's how faith comes. Romans tells us in Romans 10, 19, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In the Greek, it says, faith comes by hearing, and, I'm going to read it for you, akoa dia pamatos Christos. In other words, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So, the word of God is the word of Christ. That's the Greek. I just read it for you. Pamatos Christos. Christ do okay so if you don't get christ taught through the text faith can't be built in your heart because it's only by christ in his great grace that you will walk out of here and go you know what life is on fire yet god is with me this tragedy has struck yet god is still with me and like abraham abraham's going off to a world he doesn't understand like all of the university students in here You're about to embark on this thing where it's like, I don't know what's next in my life. And that was Abraham. I don't know what's next in my life. But I have this great assurance that my life is in God's hands because guess what? God is with me. I am his. This is how faith comes. And so God takes him outside the tent. He takes takes Abraham outside the tent. He says, look at the stars. And by doing that, he's giving Abraham this great rest, this great sense of Abraham's eyes are lifted off of his smallness and onto God's greatness. If you're depressed, if you're frustrated, if you're curious if God is with you, just go outside your tent tonight and just stand outside for a while and just stare at the stars until you realize how small you are in the universe. And just keep staring at those stars and keep asking yourself the really big, scary questions. Like, what's going to happen to me after I die? Life is not... Just stare at the stars... And think about the smallness of life and the greatness of God. And faith will arise in your heart because you will realize, you know what? I am in his hands. I am in his hands. I am his child. And this life is not all there is. And he is with me day in and day out. And his great grace covers my sin. And his great grace is strengthening my heart. And his great grace is not just rescuing me, but it's actually reforming me. And by his great grace, I'm going to enjoy him and I'm going to glorify him forever. forever. Whether I'm enjoying the blessings of life or whether my life is on fire. I have great peace and great grace. This is what, Abra- this is what God does to create the faith in Abraham. Let me get your eyes right off of, off of your, the fact that you can't have children. And let me have you just stare at the stars for a little while. He says, Abraham, that's about how many kids you're going to have. This is what he does. He is the author and the finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ is. And so, which brings us to the final thing, which is that not only does God affirm that he's with Abraham, not only does God affirm that he's with you, meet your anxiety with his affirmation, but he's the one that creates the faith. The reason you're all sitting here is because God is the one that created your faith. Those of you that are here that are still in in a journey of searching and seeking spirituality, those of you who have questions, you got up and you came and you're here this morning because You have your reasons for being here, but I'm compelled to tell you in your search while you are sitting here, underneath all your reasons is the great grace of God drawing you here to sit in your own humanity and recognize there is a great God that transcends this crazy world that you live in, and his great grace and his great love and his great forgiveness is towards you, and he calls you to place your faith in Christ alone. So God saves and empowers us, which is the final thing. Abraham says, or the text says this in verse 6, And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Which is amazing. God comes in grace and affirms him. God creates the grace. God does all the work. Abraham believes in the work that God did. And then God says, I'll take it. And calls him righteous. Abraham is not righteous. The, the word here says, calls him righteous, just like how you and I, in and of ourselves, are not righteous. But we are called righteous, and united to Christ, God only knows us as righteous. This is the amazing scandal of grace. It's what makes us humble and confident at the same time. It's because our righteousness isn't infused into us. So we say, I'm righteous, but my neighbor isn't a Christian, I'm better than them. It's, Im- it's imputed to us. It's handed to us. God, God literally hands Abraham righteousness. He goes, I'll take it. I'll call that righteous. You, you believe me? I'll call you righteous. He hands it to him. It's absolutely amazing. This is why we can relate to our family and our friends, people of non-belief, everybody we go to work with, with great humility and great grace, yet with great confidence, because we know um, we're not any better than they are. We're simply forgiven. We're covered in, in, in His grace. And so... Abraham now finds himself in a righteous state before God, even though his substance is sinful. Just like you and I. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, God looks on you, and you have an irreversible righteous state before God, even though your substance remains sinful. Which is why, spoiler alert, you read one chapter later, and Abraham still doesn't have any kids, and his wife says, sleep with the maid, and no hesitation. (laughs) Abraham's like, okay. I'll do it. I'll take one for the team, honey. You and I are 100, she's 75, she's looking pretty good, okay? The Old Testament reads like Game of Thrones, baby. It's just, that's how, that's what Abraham did. God calls him righteous, and how does a, if, if he was righteous in and of himself, how does a righteous, sinless person sin? We would have a major theological problem here, wouldn't we? We should all just pack up and go home, shouldn't we? Telling ourselves these nonsensical stories about being righteous. No, it's imputed. This is the the glory of God's grace. This is why when your life catches on fire, the lie is it's too late for you. That thing you did, God can never forgive. You're not righteous anymore. Don't go back to church until you get your act together. I got news for you, and it's really good news. You were never righteous in the first place. You're clinging to a bloody cross. Christ is your righteousness. In and of yourself, your substance is sinful. And more and more, over the course of our life, we will live to the glory of the one who saved us. This is, this is the imputation of righteousness to Abraham. This is how Paul uses it when Paul talks in Galatians about the imputation of righteousness to, to you and I, which is great news when the accuser comes and when the lies come we call it you know it's that his righteousness is is uh is absolutely perfect and passive before God because it's everything that it's everything that God did and so the good news about that is that you and I didn't do anything because you didn't do anything to earn your righteousness you're not doing anything to validate it so that means Monday morning when you go to work and you love your neighbor and you worship God and you enjoy God and you glorify God, you're doing all that because out of just the freedom that you want to imitate to the glory of the one who saved you. But you're not doing anything, it's not like punching a righteousness card where it's like with every obedient act, clickety, clickety, click, you're just getting closer and closer, you know, to sainthood. Okay, that's not Protestant doctrine. There's other churches that teach that in the city. There's a big red one behind me. Okay, that's not what's going on. That's not how our righteousness works. And so there's this great freedom. Our obedience isn't adding to our righteousness, and our sin isn't invalidating our righteousness. And when you talk that way, people say, well, that's very scary because the churches can run off and do whatever they want. No, they won't. No, you won't. You will not. Those of you who are here who place your faith in Christ alone, I know what the grace of Christ will do in your life because I know what it's done in mine. And I've read what it's done in the Apostle Paul's. And when the gospel blew my heart open in 2010 and I recognized that I was justified by grace and faith alone apart from my works, regardless of any future per- performance, my response was not, oh, good, well, I guess I'll just live however I want. My response was, i got to plant a church and share this good news because I, I can't think of any, good, any better news than this. So I already know what the grace of Christ is going to do in your heart and in your life. It produces loyalty, not license. And I close with this. He says to Abraham, I'm your shield and I'm your reward. And church, because of Jesus and his perfect life his atoning death and his divine resurrection, God is your shield and your reward. He is, your, he is the shield against the law that you can't keep. He shields you from that in his great gospel. He is the shield... Uh, he is your shield against the temptation for you to be a slave to sin because you're not. He is your shield. He is your shield against the lies that say you've screwed up too much. There is no way God is going to accept you. He's your shield. He's the shield that guards you against the lies that says that thing you did. You're a second class citizen, Christian, forever because of that thing you did. He's your shield. He says, No, my grace bats last. My grace goes further than your sin, and He is your reward. His, your reward church is His presence that is with you today, His grace that is with you today, that allows for you to wake up tomorrow and go to work or go to school or enjoy your summer holidays, or whatever you're up to, by faith and great freedom, the enjoyment of God, glorifying Him, because there is nothing left for you do it has all been done in christ your righteousness has been handed to you just like it was handed to abraham and now you get to live to the glory that is hand- of god who has handed you that righteousness god affirms he's with you he creates faith in you and then he uses the faith he gives you to save you and empower you let's pray